This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSE published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, I was walking the other day, my dog, and it was really early in the morning. And I started to think about, you know, some of the people who you meet when you're walking down the street. And I imagine there's a lot of good people who I live near. I also imagine some of them might just be downright villainous. And I wonder if there's any way to tell them apart. Well, from my experiences, you can, villains are really easy to figure out who they are. So they usually are going to wear dark clothing, some kind of costume, and they'll be followed around by an orchestra playing kind of evil music. Okay. That, see, yeah. one of the guys, he was like, da, 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 yeah. da. And I wasn't too yeah. sure. No, that's, that's evil. Yeah. That's, you should go the other way yeah, immediately. I, and I, I, I just, I walked on the other side of the road. We, I already have, I didn't like cross over because that's just rude. Like I wouldn't really be rude to someone even if they were villainous, you know, because I feel like that I don't want to disrespect someone who's evil because I feel like that they might come after me. Yeah. It seems like a well-founded, like, you know, fear. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but there's this movie about uh, all these dogs. Oh, the Dalmatian movie. Did you ever see the Dalmatian yeah. movie, right? Is it, is it 1001 Dalmatians? No, I think is it's 100, 101. It's 100. Oh, just 100. It's like okay, a classic, good. classic movie. Okay. And the antagonist, her name literally, it's Cruella DeVille. Like that's mm-hmm. the most evil name that you can imagine. Well, it kind of has evil in the name. Well, no, it has cruel and devil. Oh, it does have evil. But I think devil's yeah. the other part of that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm guessing that's etymologically like there's that's the root, right? Devil, evil, those are like rooted that's, together. I've never thought about that actually. That's something before. that I, hopefully someone will find out and tell us. <laughs> this is something that we need to know. It know. is interesting to think about good and evil and how we define it, you know, because it is such a big part. And I think of, you know, English classes, like English language arts, you always have protagonists and antagonists. Yes. And when you translate it to, to a social studies classroom, it's kind of interesting to think about what that looks like. And like, how how are we able to define it when it's real life, complex human beings, and not someone and not not somebody's characters? Yeah, I don't know, but sometimes sometimes I feel like the characters in our history classes might even become like those Cruella Devilles, like that yeah. like one sided, like almost like a cardboard cutout of evilness. Well, and the the degree, I mean, a part of of social studies and history is narrative, right? I mean, we have to. We want to craft stories that make sense, and right. one way to probably make a story make sense is figure out who's good and who's bad. I think that's how students even make sense of like, you know, wars. It's like, okay, now who are we supposed to be against and for? Right. And so, in doing so, it helps them um, have a complete story. And if it's not clear, you know, who's good and bad, I think sometimes it's like becomes a little bit. It can become complex to understand. I feel like maybe we make villains because it's easier to identify what good is if we have something to like, you know, this is bad. And the opposite of that would probably be good. Right. Like if you know what's evil, then the people against them are good. Right. 
even if you know it's more complex than that i hope that we have people who can actually talk with us with a little bit more expertise <laughs> than just our off-the-cuff discussion is, is this is this the case today yeah yeah i think we have uh two people who are way more qualified to discuss evil not because they're evil but because they've spent a lot of time thinking <laughs> about villains and evilness specifically in social studies education <laughs> so we would like to welcome into the podcast Catherine van kessel and ryan crowley hello 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 it's good to have you both today what a Thanks coincidence i know how did you guys both end up right here so, I'm assuming neither of you are evil because I hear no orchestras behind you playing any <laughs> tunes that would make me think that. So, but can you guys tell our listeners a little bit about um, your backgrounds in education? Sure. So this is Catherine, obviously not Ryan. You can probably tell by the voice. Uh, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada, uh, in the Department of Secondary Education. Uh, but before that, I did uh, teach in the classroom. For about 10 years, I taught uh, secondary social studies and Latin. And then I'm also, I also do some other things. I'm on the uh, Aspen Foundation for Labor Education, which we developed some resources for teachers. And I'm also part of the Garneau University Early Learning Center. It's inquiry-based learning for little ones. This is Ryan, and I am assistant professor at the University of Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky, USA. Before that, I was a, well, I was a grad student and all that, but way before that, I was a high school teacher for eight years in Texas, mostly, and taught economics and U.S. history and all that, all that good stuff across the disciplines. Dan is also from Texas. I don't know if you know Dan. I've met Dan, yeah. <laughs> See? I've met Dan, Yeah. Well, important distinction, I'm from Oklahoma and I live in Texas, Michael. <laughs> and I'm actually not even from Texas. I just live there. So but my I, wife is from Oklahoma, Dan's hometown. So I know. Go I know. Us. Yeah. There we go. And Ryan, you know, this is our new thing on the podcast is when we just yell at people is, you know, Kathy Swan, because you're at the University of Kentucky. I do. She's right down the hall, actually. Tell me. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have had Kathy on the podcast. So yeah, if you want to hear Kathy Swan, you can go back and listen to episode 10 on episode the C3 frame. So, but we're here to talk to you guys today about an article that the two of you wrote uh, that was published in Theory and Research in Social Education. So first and foremost, congratulations on having your research published. Thank you. Thank you. So the article is titled, Villainification and Evil in Social Studies Education. That is like one of my favorite titles of any article, academic article I've ever heard. Uh, <laughs> and the topic is really fascinating. Can you guys tell us a little bit about what you were exploring uh, in this article and research study? Sure. What we're really looking at is, you know, that tension between individual and collective action. So, or in some cases, inaction. So what, what makes something evil and how might we think about evil in ways that maybe encourage evil or discourage evil depending on what happens uh, which is a really like obtuse way of saying we want less horrible things but we think we have to talk about horrible things in order for that to happen nice good good place to start <laughs> so how do you even d define or start to define evil i mean do you rely because <laughs> i feel like evil is often when i hear it talked about it's often in like religious contexts Sure. Um, and I think some philosophers delve into it a little bit, but I don't know. So what, what like background did you have to kind of start discussing this topic? Oh gosh. Well, there's, um, 
almost an infinite amount of, of religious scholars and philosophers talking about evil. So it's, uh, I mean, if you've got to spare three hours, we could maybe dive a bit into it. <laughs> um, but what it comes down to is, well, for me, I just, I had an interest in evil. Uh, I was teaching in, uh, in Alberta, the grade 11 curriculum, which has sort of a genocide subunit. And I was really um, upset by it because I found either it was really surface level and nobody cared, or I was destroying people's like faith in the world and themselves. So I was really interested in, um, you know, that evil and how we're thinking about it. Uh, and as I started studying it more formally, like I realized, I mean, there's probably a hundred definitions or more of evil in certain permutations and combinations. And what I found uh, is that no one definition is actually sufficient. Certain ones are helpful in some ways and not in other ways. So I find, you know, for this paper that Ryan and I wrote, um, Hannah Arendt's uh, idea of the banality of evil was really helpful for this idea. But in other contexts, I think like Elaine Badiou's philosophy of evil is really productive, uh, as well as, you know, people like Jean Baudrillard and symbolic evil. Like there are many different evils, and I think they're all worthy of exploration and are helpful in some contexts, but not others. So what did Hannah Arendt say? What was her way of talking about the banality of evil? Well, her big thing was that there's a lot of evil going on that are people that are just like you and me. So they don't have that cape and are followed around by creepy music behind them. But they're just like, you know, someone we would know, you know, our uncle or even ourselves uh, at times. So it was those ordinary things that would maybe surprise us. So, Michael, it could be anyone on the street. You're passing oh by. You this need is to be- why I don't cross the street to the other side because everyone's <laughs> evil and you should just keep walking. Appearances are uh, are deceiving because sometimes the people who look really nice are the most evil. Don't judge a villain by its cover. Is that the phrase? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a really silly – Like, I feel like books have so many things on them that you can't judge them by covers. I just want this to be clear. Like, They have quotes about the book. They give you what the book's about. Like, I feel like you should be able to judge a book by car, but you shouldn't judge people by how they dress or how they look. That's we'll have to come back to the book one, Michael. That's a that's a longer discussion uh, okay. for sure. Maybe another a separate episode. I think so. <laughs> so so Hannah Rent um, talked about that everyone has the capacity to do evil. So how do we know when it's happening, or how do we how do we judge it? Can we create criteria for it? Is there a way to understand that? Well, it's tricky uh, because she doesn't set out like a firm path, like step one, do this, step two, then we know the evil and so on. But um, I think the answer lies, uh, at least in part, in being interconnected. Uh, So she was really concerned about people being... um, you know, really insular. Uh, And she plays a lot with ancient Greek and the ancient Greek word for idiot actually comes from the word for private person. And so if you're too isolated, then you're not going to be aware. So a lot of people think of Hannah Arendt and they associate her with the Stanley Milgram experiment about um, following orders. And I mean, certainly that's an aspect of it, but there's a broader part that often gets missed that it's just, if you're, if you're really isolated in your thinking, you're not non-thinking, but you're thoughtless. So you're going about your business and you're not taking that time to see how you have an impact on other people. And this, for anyone that forgot, the Stanley Milgram experiment is uh, where basically if someone with a lab coat tells you to shock someone else, it seems like some people will do it because of that authority and that thoughtlessness, right? Like they're not kind of making ethical decisions for themselves. They're being obedient within a situation. We were sort of trying to, near the end of the piece, come up with 
examples, um, you know, because the piece is both about villains, but also about evil in a more general sense. And history definitely has villains, but then there's also, you know, bigger conceptions of what evil looks like in and even in, in contemporary times. And the things that I kept coming back to was our food system and the way that we consume food as just being a giant evil industry. And I think that uh, piggybacking off of what Catherine said about interconnectedness, I think we're very disconnected from the way our food gets produced. Um, and therefore, there tends to be a lot of thoughtlessness in the way that we consume it. And even if we maybe consume it with an, with an eye towards you know, our diet and health, we don't always consume it with an eye in terms of like the treatment of animals and the treatment of workers that are part of this whole big system. So I think we just get distant um, from big systems like that because they're very complex and because they're, I don't know, just because they're removed from our daily lives. And so it's very easy for us to participate in evil in ways that we don't see as causing immediate harm in our surroundings. And so I think that was something, that was an, a, an example for me that kind of hit home and helped me understand, because Catherine really had to walk me through a lot of the more sort of theoretical stuff of the evil, because that was more of her her sort of background and field um, as an evil person just by nature. <laughs> so then um, I had to learn, because I'm, I'm good by nature. Uh, so... <laughs> So that That's was a total that, lie. that made a lot that made a lot of sense to me. <laughs> so Michael, now we know that depending on what you ate for breakfast, the evil person may be in the mirror. Oh my god. They're calling from inside the podcast. house. <laughs> what did you have for breakfast today, Michael? <laughs> Probably something that caused lots of other people harm. <laughs> I did have an egg. But salted is that with, evil? The, with the tears of uh, young so, children. Tears somewhere. of my enemies, yeah. 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 So how does this for social studies teachers who are like, where is this all going? What are you guys talking about? So how does this fit within a social studies context? Do you have some examples of, of the ways that we can think within our curriculum of good and evil or villains and heroes? Oh, yeah, there's no shortage of examples. Uh, in the paper, we play around a lot with with talking about Hitler, because he's really uh, the, the king of all villains. He's the supervillain. Uh, so what we're kind of looking at, and this is this is quite an extension of Arendt, not what she had planned, because she was looking at ordinary people doing evil. She wasn't really thinking about those already perceived as evil. So we're kind of flipping her around a bit and saying, like, how can we maybe make Hitler more normal? So I've done this in classrooms, uh, both at the high school and the university level, and I, I show them pictures of Hitler kissing babies, Hitler laughing on the phone, Hitler playing with dogs, and people feel really uncomfortable. And that also has to be part of it, is you, you have to kind of realize that these emotions are going on and talk about them, uh, and, and sort of what that does, because it's much more comforting to have evil be other and not us. So if we make him look you know, like our uncle that says questionable things at the Thanksgiving table, more so than the supervillain, then that brings that down to that daily level. So some of it is not that you have to use a particular resource, although, of course, some resources will do this more than others, but it's often as simple as how you frame it. So instead of saying, Hitler did this, what about talking about the nexus of people that were part of that? Just changing the language of, of how it's phrased. That does, I mean, even thinking about that right now, it does make me a little bit uncomfortable thinking of, you know, Hitler kissing babies and trying to make him normal does make me feel squeamish. And that's probably a good thing. So this way I can realize that any, like this, you know, this is a person who grew up, who is, who grew up in a society then chose this. Yeah. The uncomfortness level, like I, I still have, but. Well, and Hitler well, was a veg Hitler was a vegetarian, so. 
And a history teacher. No, oh, no, no, that was Paul Pot. No, sorry, it was Paul Pot was a history teacher. Okay. Mussolini uh, also taught Hitler was for... Hitler was a vegetarian painter. Yeah, that's right. He, he was a painter before he became a dictator. <laughs> I don't know if he continued it. Yeah, it is. I mean, I it, once you start relating to someone who you know is evil, it changes. It really is unsettling because then it's all of a sudden like we all start to recognize we have the capability to be evil. And I think the the flip side of that also is, um, you know, even just talking about Nazis as this like faceless kind of concept of evilness enacted. Um, and I know there's a book that was recommended to me. I didn't read it because I just judged it by its cover, but um, it was called or- Ordinary Men. I don't know if anyone's read that. I honestly have not read this, but that was the whole idea about uh, looking at um, a reserve police battalion and in, in how they enacted evil and how they went about enacting orders. Um, and that these, again, were kind of people who were ordinary or normal in some kind of way. And, you know, um, not like this, I don't know, concept that you, you kind of imagine. Yeah, that, uh, it's a Christopher Browning book. Uh, and his work is phenomenal. Because a lot of because Hannah Arendt gets a lot of flack because Adolf Eichmann wasn't exactly the best person to illustrate her theory because historians unearthed a lot of things over time that he was actually a, a little more diabolical than he had let on. So, but Christopher Browning's work on with the police battalion is a perfect illustration of what she was trying to get at. Do you guys have some other examples you refer to in the article that kind of help illustrate these concepts for teachers beyond Hitler, which is obviously a dramatic one that a lot of people could um, relate to? Yeah, I think, well, there's one at the very beginning about, uh, and this actually came from, uh, so a lot of my work is in in race and education, and I'm, you know, sort of, I'm fascinated in racial history in the U.S. and race relations and the civil rights movement and all that kind of stuff, and so when I started thinking about this, thinking it through with Catherine, I thought a lot about the idea of racism as a system, and then very specific as in, you know, Jim Crow racism in the in the United States South, and how even that as a big system gets reduced to individual actors. So someone, you know, the example that we start the paper with is, is Bull Connor. Um, so Eugene Bull Connor was a commissioner of public safety in Birmingham, Alabama, and he's He's one of the most notorious sort of villains of the civil rights um, movement or the opposition to the civil rights movement. And so we talk about uh, actions that he took that involved the Freedom Riders. So the Freedom Riders were coming into Birmingham and the KKK made a deal with the local police and sheriff that they wouldn't do anything if the KKK stopped the buses. And and, um, eventually one of the buses was firebombed and there was this big event. And it's always um, framed in textbooks as kind of orchestrated by Bull Connor, and he's the face of this. But if you really think about everything that went into making that happen, you have the federal government who didn't enforce, you know, court rulings that has outlawed segregation and, and interstate busing. You have police departments. You have you know state politicians. You have local politicians. You have business owners. I mean, you have a whole uh, institutional, you know, all these different layers of society that allowed this event to happen and that actually you know, created the conditions for it to happen. Yet when you read a passage about it in a textbook. It's just like Bull Connor made a phone call, and then this thing happened. You know, and so I think the KKK is another face um, that we see a lot that's much more complicated than we make it. And even if those people, you know, like Hitler is a convenient villain in part because he did some pretty terrible things, right? So it's not that Bull Connor didn't do terrible things. It's not that the KKK didn't do terrible things. It's just that I think the point of the paper in a, in a sort of a short sense is that um, – if we only isolate it in those extreme versions of it, then we have a hard time recognizing 
evil when it happens um, in much more everyday ways, or we don't think about the way we contribute to evil through everyday actions. And we only think of it as this overt actions that people take. Yeah, it seems like there's kind of two strategies to avoid having to really wrestle with evilness. Like one seems to be, okay, we're going to pin it on these individuals and put your blame there, right? And that puts it out. The other one is when textbooks actually start using passive language and taking the the perpetrators out of the textbooks. And you'll see this, they'll say things like, you know, slaves faced bad conditions or slaves faced abuse or something like that. But it, it doesn't say from who. And so what it is is not like recognizing the everyday people whose job it was to enforce this system or who voted for Bull Connor or all the other people that supported these kinds of actions. And that, again, that makes people uncomfortable. And I often find this uncomfortableness and even some students who, who wrestle with like am I feeling guilt once they start having to wrestle with these questions and not knowing how to understand their own whiteness within a racist history and how what that means today. And um, and so that's a challenge, I think, for uh, a lot of teachers is getting at those topics and helping students wrestle with that and understanding how those systems work. Yeah, I think just to be a, a language teacher here for a second, it's, you know, what is that subject of the sentence? So, you know, if using the, as you said, using the passive voice or putting in something that's not us in there uh, lets us off the hook. But it's, it's so tricky, though, because you want to be both responsible and not responsible at the same time. And we don't have the language really to talk about that. Like, you know, back to, uh, you know, the example of racism. I mean, there are certain things we are not responsible for that have been inherited and, and put in and how we were trained. And yet we are also still responsible become, to become aware of that legacy and to subvert it in, you know, multiple different ways, multiple different times. So in some ways, language has to sort of catch up with the complex thinking that we need to be doing. Which is why we make up our own words, like villainification. <laughs> <laughs> Has more, that not been used in other places? I don't think so. I think Ryan came up with it, actually. It's your invention. Well, we were trying to, initially, the, we were thinking about the James Lowen and the idea of heroification, right? So this idea that there's a pretty robust critique out there of this, the problematic aspect of heroifying certain people. You know, people talk about MLK as this hero, and maybe Rosa Parks is one of the biggest ones where you just strip away all aspects of, you know, her her life and what she did and all the support around her and just make it seem as if she just decided one day to, you know, take the action she did on the bus, right? So that's, so, so that, that's, that critique is out there and I think pretty well developed. And, you know, James Lowen talks about that in his book, Lies My Teacher Told Me. So villainification was a play off of heroification. Um, Nicely done. Yeah. And it comes back to that idea of not oversimplifying things, right? Because I even have seen cases where, for example, we talk about MLK's flaws and, you know, whether it was um, affairs or the kind of disregarding Bayard Rustin within the civil rights movement when that became a pressure and not standing up in those cases. And then students, like, they struggle with the complexity. So then they're like, oh, MLK wasn't good. And I'm like, wait, it's not, again, it's not that simple as good or bad. Look at MLK's writings and his history and everything he did. He made as positive an impact on U.S. history as you possibly could make, but he was a flawed individual. Like mm-hmm. every individual we study probably in, hum- in, in, uh, in history, I guess the question is, I always think of it as starting to think in terms instead of binaries and start thinking in terms of spectrums, which is a kind of a big goal, I think, in general of understanding complex um, histories, complex realities today. I don't know. But, you know, the one, one thing I'd like to ask you guys is I think the thing that's difficult, too, is when you want to take action, 
it's easy to have a villain. You know what I mean? When you start seeing the other side as bad and your side is good, it's easier to be a political agent in some ways than when you see it as complex. Absolutely. Uh, I actually just read an article the other day about the Me Too movement and how that, you know, definitely, uh, you know, as feminists, we, we've taken down some of the patriarchs, but the patriarchy is still very much alive and well. Uh, but it's easy to get people behind uh, taking down someone awful, you know, like Harvey Weinstein or something like that, who has, you know, been a really horrific villain in lots of sorts of ways. But at the same time, you know, we still have all those structures in place that allowed someone like him to be in that section. But it's harder to rally people towards making a better system because that's way harder. It's way easier just to take somebody down. Uh, but we need to build something else at the same time. And I think from the from the perspective of you know, marginalized groups and kind of motivating and, and organizing and agitating for certain rights, you know, I think it, it really helps to have a target that you're trying to hit, right? So, um, you know, you think about the marriage equality movement as an example of that. So, the, you know, that specific legislation and, and clearly a, a goal or an outcome that was um, desired by a lot of people and it represents inclusion in society in important ways and all these kind of things. And so it's an easy way to get people, not easy, but it's a way to get people motivated and push for a goal, but you know, to Catherine's point too, you know, once you once you accomplish that goal, and there is marriage equality, then you know, what then? Like what? Like to what? And I'm not suggesting it was a bad strategy, but just thinking strategically in a bigger sense, you know, every time you make a move and and identify something as a target, then something else is not being targeted, and political capital is being expended in a way that it maybe can't be used towards something else, you know. So maybe. There's other things, you know, about quality issues in the workplace or things like that, that that didn't get addressed and that maybe now will be harder to address because this was addressed first, right? So um, it's not, you know, picking on the the goals that people have because I think the goals, you know, you need goals, as we've been saying, to, to get things to happen. But every time you identify one, then you are not identifying something else. So it's a, kind of a fraught process. It reminds me of when we talk about civil rights and the civil rights movement and the passage of like the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, that's where I really try to emphasize the students' thinking in terms of continuity and change because they often we often talk about the change in civil rights. Civil rights accomplished this and this. Um, Brown versus Board is another good, but what didn't change? Well, racist attitudes didn't change when that law was passed, and so then we have to look at the ways that that law was, you know, pushed back against, or the ways that it just shifted into different, you know, strategies um, that maybe didn't use the same terms. And so, when you look in terms of continuity and change, you realize that change in society doesn't usually happen like, you know, in these stopgap moments. It happens over longer periods of time, and so studying milestones is is good. But if you don't look at what stayed the same, then you kind of miss what we need to keep doing. This is great. I do think that we need to make things a bit more complex, not complicated, but more complex. I only have a certain amount of time a year, and I definitely have things that I need to cover. What advice do you give to classroom teachers who want to, you know, make more three-dimensional people in history? Well, what I, what I try to do is I try to pick a few figures that will be salient with whatever the curriculum is that I'm dealing with. And you work with that, and then you make sure that you are giving a nod to that later. So, I mean, every villain of history in whatever grade level you're looking at, I mean, you wouldn't be able to give them all 
copious amounts of attention. But if you draw someone's attention to to one of those figures, and then as you're talking about someone else, say, oh, you know, remember when we talked about so-and-so, and that there's a lot of complexities and nuances? Gosh, we don't have time to get into it now. But if you're interested, you know, you could look off in that direction. And there's sort of this humility, this nod that what you're giving them in your classroom isn't going to be the total picture, and that that's okay. But just a, an acknowledgement of that complexity that's there, whether you have time to deal with it or not, I think is a, a super simple uh, way to to start getting there. Catherine and Ryan, do you have any other examples of activities you've done in your classroom? For example, I just even, when you talked about like seeing images of Hitler as like a, a regular person and maybe even using that as like a bell ringer to ask students what seeing him in those scenarios, laughing or playing with kids or kissing babies, what emotions that summons in them and, and exploring why. I could see that as being a way to start a class. Do you have any other activities you've done with your students? I like to work with with a lot of media. So yeah, definitely photographs, uh, like you just noted, uh, but also film. So mentioned in the paper uh, is a Canadian documentary uh, called Love, Hate and Propaganda that's in several parts. And what they do is they do show, obviously, what's going on with, you know, the supervillain of of Hitler and and these sorts of things. But it also shows day to day. So it gives this beautiful story, well, beautiful and horrific story of a woman in Germany who supported Hitler. uh, And, you know, because he was making the economy better and all these sorts of things. But then it turns out that she was descended from Jews. uh, And so eventually under Hitler's new laws became a victim of the policies she had supported for very other mundane sort of reasons. So this film, of course you know, does that very powerfully because you see pictures and you have a a woman with a German accent reading some of her diary entries, uh, which you could easily, you know, if you have access to a documentary like that, wonderful. But you could also just do in your classroom with bits. Uh, We have so many uh, primary sources, not only for uh, World War II, but, you know, for other things we might study, like you know, the civil rights movement and so on, and and getting the voices in um, of those people that we could identify with um, in various sorts of ways, uh, I think is is very helpful. And I, I think, and this is something I've done with my method students in the past, so not something I necessarily did as a, as a classroom, secondary classroom teacher, but I've done with method students is to look at, in the spirit of complexifying historical figures, is to look at the Rosa Parks story, right, which is something that everyone knows, and it's especially powerful because it's one that you learn at such a, such a young age, and it's just kind of told this very simple story of courage, uh, which it certainly was a story of courage, right, but but without knowing her individual background, you know, her history as a you know field secretary for the NAACP, went to the Highlander Folk School, and just that there was this whole movement that was ready to rise up. So what we've done is is collected a bunch of primary sources that that get at that, and it a, a really nice companion to this is a, it's a really short little article by Herbert Cole, The Politics of Children's Literature. So this is it's geared a little more for an elementary education audience because it's kind of poking poking holes at the story that you often tell sort of in a children's book. But the story that's told in the children's book is not really that much different from the story told in a high school textbook at all. Uh, so I think it works for both of those. But uh, he breaks the story, the story that's typically told apart or about her apart into six or seven different pieces, and he, make, and he makes them all more complicated. So he talks about how sort of the reality behind that situation that's been kind of glossed over in the more simplified story. So that's a really good one to do. And I think there's, I think there's similar things that you can do with, with Martin Luther King. You know, and again, this is more sort of chipping away at the you know, people that we think of as more simplified heroes, but I think it does a lot of the same thing that we're talking about here, which is just understanding that people are more complicated and it gets back to the thing that Catherine talked about at the very beginning this idea between 
the tension between individual and society, right? So, so Rosa Parks was not just an individual when she took this action, right? I mean, there was a whole network behind her that was ready to rise up, um, that instituted this boycott that was extremely complicated, took incredible organization to execute, um, that lasted for 300 some days, I think, um, you know, before the law was changed. So um, at great sacrifice, you know, people walking and carpooling and all these sorts of things. And, and, and that part is just really not even told. Um, and so, so I think that's a good example as well. Did you ever see an iceberg or a picture of an iceberg? Like, I feel like with, with both heroes and villains, we often just look at the tip of the iceberg, you know, the, the person, um, your, you know, Pol Pot's, your, your Hitler's. But there's so much more going on underneath, and it's the, the people who are supporting them, the people who are, you know, as it gets further and further, the society that creates that, that, you know, it's important for us to also look underneath the water. Is that how icebergs work? <laughs> I think that's exactly how icebergs work. I don't think uh, there's more, any icebergs left. Oh, that's sad. They are Speaking of evil. Mm. Yeah, there you go. Um, it reminds me of the recent American experience that really went into, uh, it's called Oklahoma City, that went into Timothy McVeigh's background. You know, because we often see him as just this disgruntled individual, but it talked about how his association with white supremacist groups and, you know, militias, like, over time was a big part of him moving towards those actions and that he wasn't just this lone wolf as he's portrayed to be, but, you know, that there were systems and other people that kind of supported him along the way. Well, and that, I think, is a, we have so many examples of that now. I mean, the, you know, Dylan Roof and all of these, you know, mass shooter incidents and a lot of that, as you said, the narrative comes out of the lone wolf, you know, I mean, that's when it's a white male, typically it's a lone wolf, but, you know, I think there could be a good, you know, critical media analysis component that would not forgive anything that he did, but to just to try to understand the context in which he acted and like all the conditions that made it possible for him to decide to, to go into the church that day and, and do what he did, which just like when you read the details of it and hear the story, it seems incomprehensible that someone could do that, right? And the only thing we can assume is that he was insane or he was mentally, mm -hmm. you know, that's, or, you know, and we always want, it gives us comfort to think of him as being a lone wolf, that he's not, you know, that there's not other people out there like him and that there wasn't a network of people that in some ways nurtured this, this kind of plan or these feelings that he had, right? And of, and of course, like Charlottesville made us wrestle with the, the, the reality that that's not true. We know, I mean, people now mm -hmm. can be white supremacists and march in the streets, um, which you didn't think would happen in 2017. Yeah. When we talk about, you know, Jim Crow, we often we talk about the KKK as if it wasn't made up of people from the communities. I feel like confronting the fact that, you know, these were individuals in these communities. It's not just this other organization. These were, you know, everyday it, people. It was the mainstream. Like I mean, it was the mainstream, right? It wasn't mm -hmm. a, a fringe group. Um, and that's where you... It, KKK had power in, you know, numerous state governments. I think Indiana is used as one of the most compelling examples. But I've also sometimes done activities where students talk about just their own role, even within, you know, I think it's important. We, we can't talk about like Nazis and, and all of these villains and, and evil in society without also like just talking about what happens in our hallways of our school. Because I'm like, if you go out and stereotype and treat the kids in our school poorly, especially who are marginalized or bullied um, or oppressed within our school, and you go out and participate in that system, it's like, what are we learning? You know. And so I, I've sometimes used the what would you do videos. There's a bunch of them on YouTube. One of the ones I use is the Aiding the Fallen one, which is about 
how we treat homeless people we see and how would we treat a homeless person that we walked by who was laying on the sidewalk. And um, so sometimes relating it back to those situations can be a helpful way for them to start thinking in terms of their own citizenship, you know, on grand scales where we have our laws and other and systems, but then also in their everyday actions. Another strategy uh, I use is uh, just using popular media. Because when you start talking about evil, especially if you start banding around like definitions of evil, like it's a very intimidating thing to understand. So if you use like popular film and television uh, as sort of a gateway, you know, uh, like for example, when I was teaching, you know, Breaking Bad was very big. And so we would talk about Walter White and his sort of slow descent into villainy uh, and how that changes your perspective on how you might judge other people in society. So if you sort of have your finger on the pulse of media that's students are interested in you might there might be a, an example there you can bring in as you want to add complexity to a historical figure you're looking at michael i guess the lesson here is that you know there was probably a time when darth vader didn't have an orchestra and he was just a boy named anakin i wonder if george lucas would ever consider going back and like doing some sort of movies about that I yeah know. i don't know i those would be weak points in a series i feel like well <laughs> thank you two so much for helping us Think about villains and evilness within the social studies. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. And just a reminder to our listeners, make sure to read the full article, Villainification and Evil in Social Studies Education. It is published in Theory and Research in Social Education in Volume 45, which is Issue 4 of 2017. So you'll make sure you want to read the full article. Now, Catherine and Ryan, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, I have a profile on Academia and ResearchGate, so that would be a repository of things that are evil. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, similar, same, Academia and ResearchGate. Okay, no, uh, no, no personal website, but maybe I should get one. Well, we'll definitely get those linked up, and if you add a website, let us know, and we will add it to our show notes. Thank you both so much for joining us today, and we definitely hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Now, at the Vision of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to chat, hit us up. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you get your listening needs met. And Dan, we have a special treat for us. Do we have a five-star review? We do have a five-star review. Yay! I know it's called, uh, it's a five-star review. It says the real deal. I like it already from TLL Lorg. I'm delighted to have finally found a podcast that features real conversations about education, part practice, part research, and 100% authentic. Thank you. That is nice. That's going right up on the wall. <laughs> refrigerator, refrigerator. I'm going to use that when people, whenever people doubt me, I'm going to be like, I was told by ELL Lorg that I'm 100% authentic. TLL TL Lorg. TL Lorg that I'm 100% authentic. So thank you for listening. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. <laughs>